May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Kuk Audio podcast. I'm DC Poobov, Kuk Audio and Kuk Archives. Doing our bit to preserve the legacy of Shinju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind? I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So uh, today we have a guest, one Linda Lehrhaupt, uh, and uh, she's a... Um, a teacher of Zen in uh, Europe, in America, and um, anyway, I'm going to read something to you. This is from the Open Mind Zen Meditation International website. And... Um, it has uh, our teachers, and uh, she's the second person listed. This is openmindzen.com. Uh, oh, let, let me say one thing here. Uh, her, her own sangha is uh, zen-herz.de. It's German. Uh, zen dash herz dot de. You know, de is Deutschland, is uh, Germany. Uh, she teaches a lot in German. She was born in America, uh, with that name. That's her maiden name, and uh, uh, she married a German, and they live in France, and she has started um, an international. Uh, group, um, uh, MBSR, or an international practice, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And um, a, um, a native German who's going to be in, in maybe the next podcast who, who uh, was visiting here uh, said, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, is bigger in Europe than Zen, than all the Zen added up. And it's international. Uh, so um, here, let me read what this site has to say about Linda. Linda Miyoki Lehrhaupt, Ph.D. Roshi, has been practicing Zen since 1979. She received Dharma transmission from Fusho Roshi in 2012. Linda was ordained as a Zen priest in 1992 and served as Shuso, or head priest, in 1998. She has also studied with Gimpo Merzel Roshi and Nico 
Tideman Sensei. In her work life, she is the founder and director of the Institute for Mindfulness-Based Approaches, based in Germany. She has been teaching in adult education since 1971 and has degrees in education and performance studies, where she specializes in religious ritual and traditions. She has been practicing Tai Chi and Qigong since 1978 and for 20 years directed teacher training programs in both arts. She is the author of Tai Chi is a Path of Wisdom, Shambhala Publications, 2001, and a co-author of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, the MBSR Program for Enhancing Health and Vitality, New World Library, 2017. So, that gives you an idea, then she's going to have quite a bit to say. She dropped by to visit here with um, uh, a fellow, you know, he's very interesting. I'd sort of like to do a podcast with him. I can't remember his name right now. He was, um, uh, anyway, he was uh, another Buddhist that she was, she was here in Bali visiting. She she had just done a, a workshop or a, a session, a tour. Yeah, I think more like a tour, a mindfulness tour of Japan. She'll, she'll explain that. Um, and so she decided to drop by Bali on the way home and, uh, you know, get a little R&R. And uh, so uh, she looked us up here, and that was very nice. We had a wonderful uh, afternoon uh, visiting, and uh, then I said, hey, why don't you be a podcast guest? And so I called her up while she was still here in Bali, and we talked, and so uh, you're going to hear what we had to say. So, when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever you want for as long as you wish. And then, when you're ready to come back, hit unpause and we'll be there to end the meditation or whatever. We'll hit a bell and we'll give Linda Lehaupt a call. Hello, do you hear me? Hi there, yeah. Is the sound good enough? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, good uh, morning. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm really getting a, I'm getting a very good rest, and I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying very much being here in Ubud, on Bali, my first time. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> I, can, I can understand why you live here. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, I'm sure it's a little hot for you sometimes. Well, you know, when you have a pool and uh, you have an air-conditioned room when you need it, it's really fine. 
it's okay. And yeah. It's a nice breeze as well. So, no, I prefer the hot to the cold. It's much better for my joints and my bones. So, um, yeah. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't get super hot like in a lot of places. Uh-huh. Um, hmm. So, uh, Linda, um, ha- would you pronounce your last name? Let me try. Uh, Lerhaupt. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, you would say, or we would say in Germany, Lehaupt, Lehaupt. And yeah. Leer and Haupt, it's, it's like many Jewish names. It's a combination of two words. And in my case, I only found out, that's my maiden name. And I only found out. Oh, is I, that right? Yes. Huh. And I only found out when I married my German husband what my name meant. And uh, it was kind of a surprise because... I had read somewhere that uh, European Jewish names were often based on the professions that people have. Yeah. And I found out that Lehaupt means head teacher. And that's what I am. <laughs> I'm the head of an educational oh. I'm a head the head of an educational institute uh, in my professional day job, so to speak. And uh, of course I'm a Zen teacher, so there you go. Ha! <laughs> huh. That's great. Well, you were destined. It seems so. Uh, it seems so. So, um, well, uh, what, what are you doing here in Bali? I'm on vacation. Uh, I was leading a retreat in Japan, a mindfulness retreat for students in our MBSR teacher training program. And as I was about to go home and heard about the cold wind blowing down from the Arctic and rain and (laughs) whatever, I just said, I've got to have a vacation. So, um, and I haven't taken a vacation in a while. So I just decided, why not? It's a hop, skip and a jump to get here from from Japan. And I just thought I'll I'll take a break in my journey home. So that's why I'm here. Yeah. and uh, while you're here, you're going to do a, a retreat, right? I am. That was another thing. I, uh, I had originally booked a, a retreat with a, a silent retreat in the style of Zen. And this teacher was teaching in Portugal where I was snowbirding, so to speak. And then I found out he was also doing a retreat here on Bali. And I said, well, why not? <laughs> I'll switch my retreat from Portugal to here. So that was another reason to come to Bali. Ah, ah. Do you know Katrinka is going to that retreat? I do. I was so happy to read that yesterday. I, I think that's great. Yeah. And yeah. We're going to be driving back together from, because I'm going to stay the last five days in Sanur. Um, uh-huh. I want to explore that as a possible place for my husband and I to come next winter. So, ah. yeah, yeah. And you, 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 you uh, booked room over in the Sudamala, right? I did. I just took something that looked fine for five days, but we are going to be looking for a a proper house. We plan to stay three months, which is what we usually do. I'm at an age where I like to. Um, Snowbird, so to speak, for three months a year, where yeah. it's warm and and uh, and has yeah. So we've gone to various places, kind of experimenting, and it seems Bali is a good fit. And so we'll try that next year. 
Yeah, I think Sonora is a good idea too. It you know it's so busy over there in Kuta and Simonyak and Shangu and all that. And, yeah, yeah, that's how I uh, feel. And I know my husband would like it better where it's quiet. And I, in a way, I would too. You know, going into Ubud during the day is like it's worse than Forty uh, Second Street on New Year's Eve. Uh, it's just yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's so crowded. Yeah, it it was great during COVID. I can imagine. <laughs> Or the, people, or the people who were not dependent on earning their living, I'm sure it was. Oh, great. yeah. It, it wasn't great overall. I mean, we, you couldn't. We, we Actually, we'd, we'd feel guilty enjoying the uh, lack of um, not only tourists, but a lot of um, expats left, which was ridiculous because it was wonderful here during COVID. Uh, they may have had their and, reasons, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, so um, tell us about uh, this retreat you were doing in Japan. What it's uh, under what auspices was it? Sure, um, I'm the founder and executive director of the Institute for Mindfulness-Based Approaches, which was the first professional training institute on the continent. Just to mention, in case your listeners don't know, I live in Germany and, and France. And I came to Germany in 1983 uh, to marry my lovely German husband, and we're still together. And I've been living in, in Germany since 93, and, no, since 83. And we have a second home in France since 96. So I founded the Institute in 2001. I did the training with John Kabat-Zinn and all the under wonderful staff at the University of Massachusetts Medi Medical Center to uh, first to train to teach MBSR courses. I did my training in the 90s and 93 and 97. And then MBSR was unknown in, in, on the European continent and basically also in the United Kingdom. It was un unknown in the 90s. And slowly, slowly, there began to be reports of things. And I was asked by various people uh, to see about offering a teacher training program in mindfulness-based stress reduction, what we call abbreviated as MBSR. And MBSR is basically... Uh, say, say that slowly. Uh, um, mind M mindfulness-based stress reduction which is a MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Yeah. And this is considered the mother and father of all the mindfulness-based programs that exist today. It was started by John Kabat-Zinn in 1979 at the mm. Medical Center of the University of Massachusetts in Worcester. And through a program called uh, Healing in the Mind, which was hosted by Bill Moyers in, I believe, 92 or 93, uh, the clinic, the stress reduction clinic that John had founded was profiled and set off a kind of a sensation in the United States, in any case. And um, MBSR began to spread. People began to do training and one thing and another. And I was one of those people in the early 90s. So in Europe... Uh, there became interest, and because I was the only one who was offering it in Germany, people began to write and say, hey, where can we do the training? And I got together with uh, some colleagues of mine in different countries, in Belgium and Holland, 
and we decided to offer a program. One of the things we felt was important is that MBSR would be offered in the language of whatever country it might be offered. So programs began in Germany through my institute, in Belgium, in Holland, and actually we were all teaching in each other's institutes because there was so little MBSR teachers at the time. Of course, it's completely changed today. Uh, we started with one program in one country in 1990, no, excuse me, in 2002. And today my institute runs 10 programs uh, in, no, we run more than that, but we're in 10 countries uh, in Europe, as well as in Turkey and Japan. So in Japan, I was there, we offer within the Mindfulness MBSR teacher training program, which is an 18 month program. Uh, we offer also a mindfulness retreat, a five and a half day silent mindfulness retreat for our teacher trainees. And that's what I was mm -hmm. doing in Japan, leading a, treat, a retreat with a colleague of mine for trainees from our programs. And we've just started our third teacher training in Japan. Mm. That's mm. a long story short, but it helps to give a bit of a background about how mindfulness-based approaches um, are spreading. There are, of course, now many other training institutes, both in the United Kingdom and Germany uh, and the continent of Europe, but we are the oldest and probably one of the largest today. And we have colleagues in England at Oxford Mindfulness Center and Bangor University in the Mindfulness Network. So those are some of the big uh, institutes offering mindfulness-based programs. That's mm. my history as far as that is concerned. Oh, wow. Impressive. I heard John Kabat-Zinn speak... Uh, Oh, I don't know, probably in the Bay Area, probably around uh, 2000. And I was very impressed with him. Um, he was really trying to bring uh, the wisdom and fundamental practice of, of Zen uh, uh, and, well, you know, Asian thought to uh, the mainstream is what it seemed to me. Yeah, that has been uh, his, his biggest contribution, one of his most important and biggest contributions to the integration of um, practice, Dharma practice, in daily life and in clinical programs. You know, we're both of us old enough to remember back when um, meditation was considered something esoteric or something only alternative people did, and you couldn't talk about it if you were in a, working in a hospital or in business, or I'm talking about, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And one of the contributions of people like John Kabat-Zinn and others um, has been to really allow mainstream, allow mindfulness, which has its roots in Buddhist tradition, but not only. A lot of people um, maybe don't understand that mindfulness practice or contemplative practice exists in many, uh, almost all contemplative traditions. Of course, it depends how you define contemplative, but if you define it in its widest sense, as not restricted to a particular culture, it tends in the West to be associated with Christian traditions, but in fact, mindfulness is present in uh, 
Muslim traditions, in uh, Christian traditions, in you know aspects of uh, indigenous spiritual traditions, and we have very, very many include practices of mindfulness among their uh, spiritual practices. So he really allowed, he really created a brilliant program. Uh, the thing that attracted me to MBSR was I am a teacher from profession. I, I my early days as a young teacher, I was. Uh, teaching English and drama in high school and in college. And I later went more into adult education, teaching things like Tai Chi and Qigong and later mindfulness and Zen. Uh, but what attracted me was it was a brilliant curriculum. Uh, as a teacher and someone today who develops curriculums from all sorts of programs, I was just so impressed with the integrity of MBSR and with the brilliance of the curriculum. And we say in the training program, and many people say that later on, that the program almost teaches itself. If you're well-trained and you have a solid practice yourself, both in teaching as well as in meditation, in contemplative practice, um, the program unfolds from week to week. The other thing that, that really attracted me was by the time I learned about the program, I had been practicing Zen for 14 years. And I immediately felt what I call the Zen spirit of the program. Now, mm. you can't say that it's this or it's that, it's Zen or Vipassana or Dogchen or whatever. But for me, as a practitioner, I felt what I called Zen spirit. And, you know, even in the... Um, even in the uh, what are now considered the nine characteristics or the nine important themes that MBSR cultivates, the first one is beginner's mind. And uh, mm. of, course, of course, again, going way, way back, uh, beginner's mind was a Zen book from Suzuki Roshi that had a tremendous influence even today. And I just, I love the program. So I, I felt that, here finally is a way to bring my meditation, my meditation practice into my work and not have to cover it, apologize for it, or defend it. Um, it was beautiful. So that's what brought me mm -hmm. eventually into this work. Of course, our institute does not only now train people to teach MBSR, we also train them to teach something called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy as well as mindfulness-based compassionate living. We offer mindfulness retreats, and we offer supervision and skills deepening courses for people for people who are teaching mindfulness. So we- What's um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. therapy, did you say? Yes, it's called that, and the abbreviation is MBCT. And that is a clinical-based program that was developed to help prevent relapse of depression. Um, today, MBCT mm. has expanded beyond that application in a program called MBCT Life, but it's still used in clinical contexts for people who are suffering from, uh, not suffering, but who uh, would hope to be able to um, prevent Relapse of depression uh, and other uh, one second, one second, Elon. Um, I mean, Katrinka wants something. Oops, sorry. Uh, yeah. Can I do yoga? Well, part wait. Huh? Can I do yoga out there? 
What, yoga? Can I do yoga? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, but close the door. Yeah. Uh, my, my apologies. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. This is life. Huh? <laughs> and the third program that we... Um, yeah, I, I just called her by my last wife's name. Oh, <laughs> I, I said, I Elon. I did that with my, <laughs> my present husband of 40 years one time, uh, several times. Um, but we're together long enough that he's fine with it. He's not fine with it, but yeah. he gets over it pretty quickly. That's another yeah. story. Hey, Katrinka, Bondi wants to get out. Pardon me. The dog wants to follow her. Yeah. All right. Now, please continue. My apologies. Um, yeah, we also offer a wonderful program called Mindfulness-Based Compassionate Living, which was developed by Dr. Eric van den Brink and Fritz Koster. Uh, they're both Dutch teachers. Uh, Fritz is a Vipassana teacher of many, many years and also trained to teach mindfulness-based approaches. And Eric is a psychiatrist who ran a very progressive mental health clinic in Holland and they developed about 10 years ago a program called Mindfulness-Based Compassionate Living, which is a beautiful program. Um, most of the people in the United States know something called Mindful Self-Compassion, which was developed by Kristen Neff and um, Chris Germer. Uh, these programs are complementary. They're not the same. Uh, MBCL is intended... You already need to have a mindfulness practice to do it. Mindfulness practice means at least to have done an eight-week course in one of these mindfulness-based programs. Uh, and Mindful Self-Compassion has a, let's just say, a somewhat different target group. But I don't want to go into mm -hmm. too much detail. I just, because it sounded like you're not very familiar with these programs, I thought I would uh, just go into Oh, yeah. No no kidding. I have a question, too. Um, uh, there were... There was emphasis on mindfulness at the San Francisco Zen Center back in to uh, um, you know the the early seventies. I can remember maybe uh, even uh, late sixties. Of course, it's the part of the eightfold path. What one thing I'm wondering is can can you comment on the how the eight, how mindfulness as part of the eightfold path is defined uh, in you know early Buddhism, and um, how uh, you define it uh, now. I, it's not a question of different definition. It's a question of nuance and depth. Yeah. If you talk to a scholar of the Pali Canon. Or if you talk to a Vipassana master teacher, you will hear a very, very in-depth um, scholarly as well as, as, well as practice-based discussions about mindfulness as it is taught in the Pali Canon, as it's taught in Vipassana um, circles, particularly those that are still have a strong link link to Asian traditions. <clears throat> um, I'm not a scholar of the Pali Canon, and I'm not. I deeply appreciate its roots, but that's not my particular interest. Um, 
I'm more interested in how mindfulness became uh, integrated into modern approaches like MBSR and how mindfulness is understood in Western Buddhist traditions and again, particularly uh, in the Zen tradition because that is my root, yeah? Um, I think that there's also a misunderstanding depending on who you are and where you practice and where your training is. There's a lot of misunderstanding even in the Western Buddhist communities about mindfulness and its place in what are called secular programs um, as, a, as in differentiation to um, Western Buddhist traditions that, let's say, identify with a traditional uh, position. I found that mostly these misunderstandings come because people don't practice both. <laughs> if you only are deeply into what has been called secular mindfulness, but I really don't like that term, but anyway, let's just say for argument's sake, uh, secular mindfulness, or you're practicing mindfulness as one of the Eightfold Paths, and that you're practicing in a, in a Buddhist tradition, uh, there's kind of skepticism and misunderstanding on both sides. As someone who's practiced in both traditions for decades, I see no, um, I see no difference. I see nuances and differences of, let's say, application. But if we look at, for example, in Zen, the relationship between mindfulness and the precepts and how all the precepts integrate and how all the Eightfold Path, all those integrate you 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 without right mind oh, i don't like right mind without without wise mindfulness you cannot really practice the eightfold path and you cannot practice the precepts without one of the other eightfold paths you can't really to a depth of integration practice the other the same with the precepts the precepts are all interwoven but at one time one may come more forward than the other. So you may have, let's say, right mindfulness in the foreground, but you have all the other um, mindfulness um, eightfold path in the background. So mindfulness is pushed kind of forward a bit in the foreground in terms of mindfulness-based approaches, but all these aspects are there. And if you look at the different... Um, if you look at the different qualities that John has identified as the nine main qualities of uh, MBSR, you have beginner's mind, you have letting go, you have non-striving, you having a beginner's mind, developing curiosity. Um, you'll see that these are all aspects that we cultivate in, in uh, so-called uh, Buddhist practice. So... It's more, I would say it's more on a continuum rather than opposites. Now, it depends what you tend to emphasize and what is your area of interest. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's a, a beautiful uh, aspect of MBSR that it is, it is not promoting a particular spiritual tradition. It's not promoting a practice which is exclusive to Buddhism. You'll find many of these uh, practices of contemplation and beginner's mind and um, other things in other practices. 
but it allows access. Uh, my mother-in-law would not go to a Buddha center, but she would go to an MBSR course to learn how to work with her stress or her illness. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and as long as one is, is uh, clear about that, when I'm teaching Zen, I'm teaching Zen. When I'm teaching mindfulness, I'm teaching mindfulness. And of course, they overlap sometimes, but there also are differences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what I also tell the students who are training in our program who get confused to begin with and say, um, well, should I teach this from my spiritual tradition or whatever it might be? And I say, no, you're not teaching a, you're not teaching a theological principle of your tradition. You're teaching stress reduction based on cultivation of mindfulness. So again, as I say, uh, a lot of the stuff that I've read, uh, I would say, uh, is based on unfamiliarity with uh, either one or the other tradition. Uh, and of yeah. course, if, it's like anything else. When you're a newly minted mindfulness teacher, um, you're just as inexper inexperienced as a new Buddhist teacher. And you need those depths of training and supervision and teaching and years to even yourself become more um, nuanced and at the same time in depth with what you're doing. Yeah. And now, when somebody asks you what is mindfulness, what do you say? I love the definition of John, and there have been many others in between, but I feel his is the most thorough. He, I'm quoting him now, he defines it as mindfulness is the awareness that arises when we pay attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And he added at some point, and with kindness. Yeah? So, oh, yeah, good. Mindfulness is the awareness that arises when we pay attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, and again, later was added with kindness. So it's beautiful, it's clear, it's precise. You know, there's nothing wishy-washy about mindfulness and mindfulness-based programs. Yeah. Uh, there, it is just as um, detailed, precise, and at the same time spacious as our Zen practice. Yeah. So uh, tell me about uh, your Zen practice. Uh, how, how did that get going? Uh, what's your... Um, uh, Way-seeking mind story. When did you first get some <laughs> inkling uh, about all that? Yeah, I'm laughing because I did go to Tassajara for um, a month and participated in a way-seeking mind um, program where we all talked. So that's why I'm laughing a little bit. Um, hmm. I began Zen practice in 1979. I was just, I was 29 years old and in deep crisis my mother had just died. I'd gone through eight years of supporting my mother in her breast cancer journey, which ended in her dying in 1978. And at the time of her uh, hospice and dying, 
I had my, I was taking care of her 18 hours a day and I had a three month baby on my arm, on the other arm. So there I was embracing both my mother and my newborn child. And my husband at the time with whom I um, have a beautiful daughter, he was taking care of my dad who was handicapped uh, and unable to take care of himself. So there we were, both of us in the middle of this amazing extremely difficult time and I had nowhere to go I had no one to turn to um, I didn't have a spiritual tradition or religious tradition myself um, and even if I did I was so busy uh, I hard and I had to work full-time on top of that so I was lost uh, and deeply troubled and I picked up two books which tremendously helped me. One was Elizabeth, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying, which in those days, there was nothing, you know, there was hardly anything. And that became my, I had, took it with me everywhere and read into it every moment because when I was reading the book, I felt I was part of what I did not know those days, but I, I felt a sense of sangha. And the mm. other book was Peter Matheson's book, The Snow Leopard. And I was so touched more by his descriptions of his Zen practice, as well as his interaction with his dying wife, who, by the way, died, I believe, on the same floor as my mother in Sloan Kettering in New York. Uh, in any case, they both died in the same hospital. And when he talked about Zen practice, which I had no idea what it was, Something in me resonated, and I looked up Zen in the telephone book in New York City and found the dress, an address of a Zen center who offered an introductory course. And that was it. I joined their beginner's class. And uh, which, which Zen center? Yeah, kind of an interesting Zen center, let's put it that way. It was the one founded by uh, Edo Shimano Hoshi. The Zen oh, yeah, sure. Zen Studies. Zen Study Society. They had a beautiful center up on the Upper East Side. I went there for beginner's classes, and I went eventually to the monastery for a retreat. But I never interacted with Edo Shimano. Um, I, I didn't become a student of his. Uh, I was more, let's say, a guest student. So, But I did begin to hear rumbles and rumors about various things going on. Uh, to the point where, in a way, I knew I was leaving the United States, so I didn't go too much into it at that time. Uh, but I'm grateful to the people and to uh, the positive energy of Shimano, uh, the positive side, let's say, that allowed them to develop such a beautiful center. Of course, there was a lot of very difficult things going on there, but I wasn't really part of that, so I can't speak to that really. And then yeah. when I came to Europe, I was so busy in the first couple of years getting my daughter settled in school, getting my work, getting married. Uh, but in 1986, I realized that I needed and wanted a Zen teacher, and I began searching for one. And I did my first Sashin in Germany with a pioneer. Uh, his name was Father Lazare. He was a Jesuit priest who lived in Hiroshima. Actually, he was there when the bomb fell. And he was a professor at some of the Japanese universities, but he also was a very senior Zen student. He went there in the 1930s. 
and he received transmission from your, um, was it, I think it was Yamada. It was either Yasutani or Yamada. And no, I think it was, I think it was, it, it, I, he must have been before Yamada. Really? Oh, okay. Well, that's why I'm saying. One or the so, other. So I don't know, but certainly he studied with them. He received transmission from them. And he, I would say, is really the, the father of a lot of, not the father, the uncle of a lot of Zen teachers um, because they didn't study with him, but through him, a lot of the European Zen teachers uh, who were not Zen teachers at the time went to Kamakura to study with Yamada. And so we have a whole yeah. generation now of Zen teachers here in Europe you know, 70 plus, 60 plus, 70 plus, who uh, re were introduced to Zen by Yamada in their youth and went on to study and today are leading. Many of them are, are Christian. Most of them are Catholic priests and nuns. Some are Protestant uh, ministers. Uh, but he had a tremendous influence. Um, so I That's sat Kohn Yamada, right? Kohn Yamada. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so I yeah LaSalle had, uh, um, he had a very good reputation. Um, and uh, I, have, I, I have a good friend in Switzerland who studied very closely with him, uh, Balthazar Lohmeyer. Mm -hmm. um, well, I did a Maisachine with him in 1986, and he was 90 years old at the time. And I was just looking over my journal from that Sashin and... I'm so deeply grateful to him. He um, he helped me to allay some of my fears about practice. Uh, it was my first real sashin, uh, which I was also kind of afraid of. And I found him to be so clear and so gentle and so unassuming and yet deeply rooted. Uh, and that inspired me to continue my search. I knew that uh, by that time that he would not be my teacher. He he was still fine, but you could see that I wanted to start with a teacher with whom I could, you know, go on for a long, long time. But I would say he was a, a real, uh, how do you say in, a German word is coming up. Uh, he was really someone who put me on the path of going deeply into Zen practice. So then I mm. eventually in 1987, I went to uh Bernie Glassman's place in Riverdale, which, by the way, was around the corner from where I was raised. And I asked Bernie. Uh, Riverdale, New York. Riverdale, New York, exactly. And, and you I were asked, raised where? I was raised in Riverdale. Oh, were you? As a child, as a child, yes. Wow. Uh, but I was raised in the working class section of Riverdale, which most people don't know exist. Uh, but it did. It was right up toward the city line between Yonkers and Riverdale. So when I say Riverdale, everyone thinks I come from a particular milieu. But in fact, my father was, uh, he was a socialist. He was head of the union at his company. And we were solidly working class um, as we were growing up. So anyway, I went to Bernie and I asked, I said I wanted to receive Jukai. And he said, well, you know, my Dharma brother teaches in Europe. Why don't you connect with him? And by the way, he's going to be here tomorrow. And, and I did. And I met Genpo Matsul Roshi and, at Sensei at the time. And I, start, I joined the next Sashin that he was teaching in Europe. And I became his student for uh, many, many years. 
So I was his student for 23 years. I received Hoshi. I was on my way perhaps to receiving transmission. I was uh, the head of the German Sangha, which I founded together with Genpa Roshi and with his permission. But in 2010, and I don't want to go into detail about this, but in 2010, I decided to leave, uh, formally resign as his student, and I became a student of Al Fusho Sensei. Today, he's Al Fusho Roshi of Open Mind Zen Center. And uh, I received Where? He lives in Melbourne, Florida. Oh, goodness. And uh, I received uh, Shiho from him in 2012, and I received Inca uh, in last, last May, last June. Oh. I also received Chukei Tokoro, uh, in other words, ordained ordination as a Zen priest in 1992 from Genpo Roshi. So what, what's his name, that teacher again? Al. Al. His Dharma name is Fusho, and his last name is Rappaport. R-A-P-A-P. Oh, Alan Rappaport. Al Rappaport. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's very active in uh, in Zen in America. He's active in the Zen, the Lay Zen Buddhist Teachers Association. He's has a wonderful uh, website. He's produced some beautiful Dharma airs. Um, and yeah. He's and what's to- his um, lineage? Well, we're both white plum. We're both white plum. Um, it's an interesting situation. He was originally my Dharma brother. I knew him for 26 years <laughs> as my Dharma brother. And, um, but he left earlier than I did. He left Gempo in 2002 and went on to study with uh, Jules Harris. And uh, so he received uh, Dharma transmission from Jules Harris through Enkyo Roshi from New York. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is the Maizumi. Tradition. The Maizumi Roshi lineage. Uh, Maizumi Roshi was the head of ZCLA, Zen Center of Los Angeles. So I'm a teacher in the White Plum lineage. Now, um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was um, uh, the uh, uh, Jukai and uh, priest ordination and if, if uh, a lay person, uh, some places, uh, lay people are giving jukai or ordaining people uh, in their first ordination as Buddhists, and you know all that we were talking about the other day. Uh, can you say something about that and the you know different approaches to it and and what you do? Well. I, I want to start by saying I haven't lived in the United States since 1983. So, of course, I go back to visit my relatives, my daughter, but I'm not active in any American association. And uh, I have to say that the, uh, the, the discussions and areas of emphasis in the United States and the existence of various uh, Buddhist associations as well as Zen associations. I know that there's the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. Uh, I know there's the American Zen Teachers Association and the uh, Lay Zen Teachers 
association. We have no Zen teachers association here in Europe. The only thing we do have is a kind of a European Buddhist teachers association, which gets together every now and again. It's not an issue over here so much. Um, there are some Japanese-inspired sanghas here, which, uh, but it's really not kind of a huge discussion. I can only give you my impressions and what I'm going to be do be doing. And I don't want to in any way talk authoritatively about what's going on in the U.S. because I don't know. I can only tell you what I've heard, um, and then some of my ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm. I'm kind of unusual in my background. I am a Zen priest. Uh, in the early years, Genpo was very traditional. I shaved my head for Shukai Tokoro. I went through the whole thing. Uh, and a beautiful ritual. Uh, I'm also a mother. I'm the CEO of a large institute. I'm firmly rooted in the world. And at the same time, I uh, am firmly rooted Zen practice, but I don't live, I've been Shuso for three months, I've done the whole thing, but I haven't lived in a monastery and I don't lead a monastic sangha. I believe tremendously in the um, value of a monastic sangha, of a priest sangha, of a priest tradition. Maybe I should also just say that I have a doctorate in something called performance studies. And my area of specialty is religious ritual and tradition. I'm not trying to lay anything on that, but just to say that I'm academically, as well as practically, very cognizant or familiar with re different religious traditions and some of these themes that come up, okay? So I won't go too much into that, but just to say that uh, I've been also involved at that level. I firmly believe that we need a priest tradition simply because they are the, uh, both men and women, they allow for a depth of study and immersion in ritual practice and in scholarly practice that would be very difficult in everyday life. They are, so to speak, not the only, not the only, but one group who, so to speak, carry the torch, yeah? And, um, and it's very important. The second thing is that um, I think that a priest tradition is very important for, how can I say, for the general public. People have a certain association with someone who has taken vows. This can be in Buddhism, this can be in Christianity, this can be in the Muslim tradition or any other tradition. But someone who has taken the vows of ministry, so to speak, of someone who has taken the vows of dedicating their life to pastoral care, so to speak. And of course, there are people who are chaplains who are not priests, but when they're but you can't, but they are combined in a priest or minister or imam or whatever person has taken those vows. Does that mean that it is only those group of people who are serious in Dharma practice? Of course not. I know almost all of my students are lay. In the moment, all of my students are lay. And five of my students are receiving transmission in 
five years, uh, excuse me, in 2024, and they've all practiced between 20 and 30 years. Um, their practice is so dedicated and so deep and so committed, and there's a difference. The difference is in, in a way, I think that when you take certain vows, you give your life away. Yeah? Um, mm -hmm. They've kind of tempered a little bit the vows. I know the original vows I took, uh, I vowed to be homeless. How could I be homeless with a daughter and a family and a husband who did not want me to go to live in the monastery? Um, that became a huge koan for me. So I think that um, I think that I, I would rather look at the feeling level about this question. I know I sensed in the things that I've been reading and some of the people I've been talking to, there's a uncomfortableness with hierarchy. There's some of the associations that different traditions allow for different levels of power. Um, there's that traditional um, divide that has existed between the priesthood and lay people going back, going back pre-Christ, yeah? Um, but we know that very strongly in the Christian tradition in the West. I think that there's a big misunderstanding and there's a lot of, there's not a really, um, there's not a really, doesn't seem to be an understanding and, res and mutual respect sometimes, not all the time, for different expressions of spiritual commitment. They perhaps, so because I'm both, uh, and I have struggled with each side of these. There were some times where I know I said, "What am I doing?" You know, when I put on my okesa and 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 this and that, and it wasn't such a part of my everyday life the way it was when I lived at the Zen Center for three months and put on my kesa four times a day and didn't wear anything else, you know, because ritual clothing has its function as well. That's another thing. But the function of ritual clothing is not only for people outside, it's also for the person wearing them. So uh, I think it's a shame that there are there sounds to be, and I know on the other hand, groups are exploring how to honor both spirits and both ways. In my own Sangha, my students who are receiving uh, transmission are all lay teachers. They will be empowered from me to give Jukai. I do mm -hmm. have one woman who is going to receive Shukai Tokoro uh, next year. Uh, she will also be when she, when she is a teacher, because she's not, she's, she's going to be what a novice priest, uh, but eventually she will also be able to uh, give Jukai when she receives transmission, um, or Denkai at least. Uh, I don't feel that, I feel that it's important, I'm okay with lay Zen teachers giving Jukai and students receiving Jukai. For me, that's not the thing that defines a priest. You, that's what my whole talk beforehand was about. That's not my uh, 
that's not why I, that's, I don't feel it's necessary to be a priest to, to give Jukai. I do think that there has to be a really close relationship between the teacher who um, gives Shiho Dharma transmission to someone and that that student can then, and, and also gives Jukai, and that student can then go on to uh, give Jukai as well. Uh, I think there has to be careful observation and working together of everyone's practice. You know, the biggest uh, problem sometimes for Zen teachers is that they no longer themselves do supervision uh, with a teacher. <laughs> and, uh, and because I'm an educator and because all our teacher trainees in MBSR uh, have to do supervision when they're teaching a course, uh, one of the things that will be part of, uh, of my uh, giving Shiho to my students is they will be required to continue to study, to continue to do supervision. Yeah. When you say do supervision, do you mean be supervised? No, yes. I mean to participate as a supervisee in supervision. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To receive supervision. Yeah. Yeah. And I've yeah. also created among them, they have what's called an in-division group. They meet regularly, the five of them, with one another and discuss themes and talk about aspects of teaching. Um, yeah. And, and then they come back to me and we discuss together aspects of teaching and I continue uh, to, to train them. It's my background. I'm an educator, you know? It's, yeah. It's... it's uh, of course, that's another prob problem in the training of Buddhist teachers. We could go on about that. Was that helpful, what I said? I hope it wasn't too long-winded. No, no, that was helpful. Uh, well, what's this last thing you say? Uh, you said that uh, a problem with Zen teachers, would you not Zen teachers, Not Zen teachers particularly. I would say uh, Buddhist teachers in the West, uh, there are various, varying levels of training to be a teacher. What is mostly lacking is training in pedagogic skills, how to be an educator, what, is it, what does it mean to be a teacher to students. I'm not talking about the, the Dharma side of it. I'm talking about the actual skill of being a teacher, how to interact yeah. with, with students how to deal with transfer and counter-transfer, how to work with a whole host of themes that come under the description of pedagogic skills of how to be a teacher, whether you're teaching roller skating or whether you're teaching Zen. It's a profession. And that is being addressed by some groups are doing beautiful jobs now, uh, creating teacher training programs. Uh, and asking their people who receive transmission uh, to do some training. Uh, I know that, uh, what's her name? Shokaku Zen Institute, I think, is doing some training. The, the Insight Meditation Society in Spirit Rock and in Barrie, Massachusetts, have teacher training programs. Um, other schools have teacher training programs, but a mm -hmm. lot a lot think that because someone has received shiho, they're trained to be a teacher. No, they're not. 
they're trained, they, their, their accomplishment as a Buddhist, someone who, um, but their technical skill, I don't know how else to describe it, their pedagogic skills in many cases uh, have not been addressed at all. And that's uh, something I pay a great deal of attention to in my, mm. uh, in my training of the students who work with me who will eventually become teachers. For example, for example, here, here is an example. In the old days, which for you and I are the 60s and 70s, I think, uh, with our Asian teachers, and actually in most fields in the West, nobody talked about trauma. Nobody talked about working with trauma. I was listening to a podcast from Eric van den Kolk, uh, who is an amazing trauma therapist and developed impressive programs, uh, I think at Harvard. Uh, we never talked about trauma. We never, and our, our mostly Asian teachers were also not familiar with it. What was the That's answer? Right. What was the answer in the old days if you had a psychological or trauma problem? Practice more. That's right. right. And when people like John Wellwood and others and people who had training in psychotherapy, like Jen Cordenfield and Tara Brach, and but I'm going back now before them. You know, they were they were youngsters in the 70s. When we look in our own tradition, Joko Beck was one of the first Zen teachers, the early Zen teachers, to say, hey, you know, we have to look with with how we work with emotions. We have to look with how we get caught up in our stories. We have to look at, at aspects that would normally be regulated to psychological uh, frameworks. No, you can't split them. So today we have a deeply uh, aware understanding what role trauma plays in our lives and how this can manifest in meditation practice. Uh, and we have skillful teachers. Uh, there's a wonderful book, for example, called Mindfulness-Based uh, Trauma. What's it called? Mindfulness-Based Trauma something. And it's not, it's not that Zen teachers or Vipassana teachers or anybody else, you don't have to become a psychotherapist, but you can have basic psychological first aid. You can learn to recognize when a student may be disassociating, may be having other problems, not to treat them because you're not qualified, but, not, but to do no harm, not to make it worse, and to be able to perhaps skillfully, um, skillfully direct them to uh, sources that may be able to help them deeper. Mm -hmm. I'm tremendously grateful that I have students who are psychiatrists and, and psychologists because when I recognize that there may be a problem, I can discuss it with them and with their support, perhaps recommend uh, to a person uh, what might be the best path for them at that time, which may not be Zen practice. It may be treatment. It uh, may be something else. Yeah. Who knew about that back then? Yeah. And unfortunately, today, there's still a lot of Buddhist teachers who have no idea. And it's, it's not that they're bad teachers, but I would say that perhaps their range of skills could be widened to allow them to support 
practice now in the 21st century where we're recognizing that um, trauma, and that's only an example, yeah? Or that teachers learn to recognize when transfer or counter-transfer is happening between them and a student. Uh, again, these were things we never talked about in the old days. Mm. How to give a Dharma talk. How to give a Dharma talk. How to work with quote unquote, and I say that very lightly, difficult students. Yeah. Um, how to work elementary grieving training. Uh, again, as a Zen teacher, you're not a grief therapist. You're not a family therapist. You're not a psychiatric. You're not a depression specialist. Uh, you're not a trauma therapist. But having basic understanding of these things so that you can at best maybe recognize someone might need something else, uh, I believe should be required. Why is it that people who do chaplain training, people who do ministry training, uh, they all, uh, if you go to a, a school of divinity and you train, you are going to be trained in these skills. If you're going to be a chaplain, uh, you're trained in these basic skills. Why should chaplains be more well-trained than our Buddhist teachers? Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that Buddhist teachers should have pastoral training to that, that level because they are chaplains and they have a specific role as well. Okay, but just a basic familiarity to do no harm. And um, I know it's being addressed in some sanghas. I think it should be addressed everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. enough to give someone transmission because they finished koan study or they've, you know, practiced 25 years and can sit still. That's not a lot. I mean, that's not, it's not that it's not, it's not enough. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, that's all very relevant to uh, uh, the the Shunyu Suzuki lineage, uh, and because he knew nothing of any of that, and uh, he he's you know he's he said so, and he also said he didn't know uh, how to teach women, how to train women. Although the women around him said, yes, you do here. Uh, but uh, he didn't feel confident because he came from a tradition where they didn't deal with any uh, mental illness or mental problem. You know, they have a, a, a one, you know, cookie cutter, one, one ver version fits all. And uh, people have to work it out for themselves. But. He said, "You know, get get my thing down, and uh, yeah, and then you will develop your own American Buddhism, uh, and uh, and and that has been happening. And I'd say one of the first student, maybe the first student of his, to really see the need for that is Yvonne Rand. Yes, yes, I deeply appreciate her work." Uh, I was reading her stuff in the 80s uh, and where she was, you know, writing about offering pastoral counseling for women who had done abortion and other kinds of um, 
at least what I was familiar with. I'm sure she did much more. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was the same thing I understand with Maizumi Roshi. I mean, Maizumi Roshi told his 12 Dharma heirs, um, basically, I can only teach you what I've learned. Although he was a little bit different in his background, but I can only teach you, but, and I can only do it the way I've learned. But I want you to go out and find your way. And yeah. when you look at his 12 Dharma heirs, you'll see they were very and are very different. I mean, you have Bernie Glassman, you have Daido Roshi, talking about continuums um, in terms of the expression of their training and practice. Uh, you have a beautiful continuum. Underneath, you feel the spirit of Mazumi Roshi, but at the same time, they expressed in the way that was their path as they developed as teachers. And then everybody in between, Joko Beck, Genpo Roshi, um, other teachers, Seizan and Egyoku and uh, other teachers, each found their beautiful expression of the transmission that they received from Maizumi Roshi. Now, right. the thing is that many of those people, you had the teachers, you had Katagiri Roshi, Kobochino Roshi, Maizumi Roshi, Suzuki Roshi, Edo Roshi, those were probably the prime Asian, Japanese, in this case, teachers, who from them comes a huge stream of American Zen and practitioners today. But you have teachers who never met them. Yeah. And you have yeah. teachers who received are now second generation. Yeah. Third generation. Fourth That's generation. That's right. Yeah. And and how can we um, I see myself as a kind of a bridge between generations. I'm 73 years old. How can I play a role in this transmission project process uh, in a way that has integrity and at the same time skillfully prepares teachers for the future? Mm. Yeah. Yeah? Mm. And... Um, other people or other traditions are doing it. Uh, and I'm sometimes concerned about the um, if you get too far, you know, how far can you get from the family tree and still have what is the integrity or what is the dedication or what is the spirit that is linking you that is not off in the middle of nowhere somewhere you know because you're off doing completely uh your own thing i when we met the other day i quoted to you a saying which i find extremely profound and it's actually i think she's a lutheran minister who oh yeah went, uh went out to start i forgot her name but She's amazing. Her books are amazing. She started a, one of the first Lutheran sanghas, churches, for what she calls outcasts, for, in those days, gay people, for homeless people, for people of all color. Um, she herself had been a drug addict and was covered in tattoos and fell in love with the Lutheran church and, and went on to receive a degree in theology in the, you know, that woman is classically trained. And at the same time, she has no problems finding expression of her Lutheran Christian faith 
in the whole world. And my favorite quote from her is, you have to be deeply integrated in tradition to integrate. I'm sorry. You have to be deeply immersed in tradition to innovate with integrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that has been, that quote has been my inspiration as well as challenge um, as I go forward. And I take it as one of my biggest koans, deepest and, and challenging uh, koans, as I am in the position now of being able to uh, um, transmit gifts Shiho to students. Yeah, well, Shunyu Suzuki uh, said um, that. He said, I can only teach you what I know. Uh, and, and he wanted people to become as familiar with it as he, they could. And the tradition he came from, he said, um, you know, to, to plant Buddhism in America is like holding a, a plant to a rock <laughs> and waiting for it to take root. He said, it's not like passing a football. You know, you'll have your own Buddhism, but it'll take time. Uh, well, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. But now they're long gone, 50 years yeah. later, um, 40 years later, 50 years later, 1923. Where are we going with this? Yeah. Yeah. 2023. 2023. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. How else can I help you, or you know, is there anything else you'd like to know? Um, yeah, uh, uh, a couple of things. One is uh, there's a tremendous uh, amount of uh, awareness now in uh, Buddhism in America, in the San Francisco Zen Center, in institutions in general about. Uh, uh, being sensitive to and including uh, the concerns of uh, various uh, groups which feel uh, the, uh, which uh, have been uh, marginalized, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, maybe st- uh, you know, starting with uh, women, gays, people of color, uh, and uh, there's. There's uh, a tremendous emphasis on, uh, seems to me, on different uh, identity groups. And um, the, there's sort of a uh, cultural battle going on in America now between, you know, uh, what, what they're calling the woke and the war on woke and all that. Do you have anything to say about any of that? Well, first you have to tell me what woke is. That shows a little bit where my cultural roots are now. What is woke? Uh, well, woke. Uh, what does uh, it mean? I think I, 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 I means uh, being aware of uh, of the. Differences between people and uh, being aware of prejudice uh, uh, against um, uh, certain types uh, people, people you know of of color, uh, you know uh, yeah. people okay. 
you know, it just means being aware of it. Now, the, I'd say the war on woke feels that it, it that uh, the they're trying to uh, uh, indoctrinate uh, children uh, in in and uh, that that it's gone too far and institutions are are uh, going to great extremes. Uh, the there uh, Bill uh, Bill Moyers not Bill Moyers um uh, uh Bill um what's it real time with uh anyway uh real time with Bill uh Maher Bill Moyer Maher um had a, a, a talk recently about how um we we shouldn't have two um we shouldn't have two um, national anthems in America. Now at the football games, they're having the regular one, and then they're having one for uh, uh, for uh, black people because there's so many blacks in the NFL. Something like that is what he was talking about. He said we shouldn't have two national anthems. I don't care which one it is. But he said, actually, what we're having is a return to segregation. And he pointed out that colleges, uh, you know, separate but equal. Colleges are are uh, offering all sorts of segregated options for living conditions, for eating, um, and different things like that. Now, the governor of Florida is um, uh, he's he's trying to censor and. Uh, what what can be taught? Uh, they he's gotten the legislature to pass uh, laws that restrict what uh, students can be taught, including in college, and yeah, uh, eliminating uh, certain courses and uh, not. The, the the Washington Post just had a headline: uh, five things you can't teach in Florida now. One is slavery was bad. Uh, so there's extremes uh, on both sides. It just seems to me it's a matter of balance as we're evolving, and uh, the the gung ho uh, woke side and the gung ho anti woke side are, are seem to me to be uh, going to uh, uh, going to extremes that that alienate others and uh, creating a lot of. Uh, division between people but um i don't i'm not part of it because we're not having that, that's not our concerns here in indonesia you know well, you're the, you're, we've got you're plenty of problems here. here you're one huh? of the minority here pardon um, you're one of the minority here in indonesia yeah, but you know, I've lived in Japan. I've lived here, and uh, the, the, the people are—I feel uh, prejudiced toward me. I mean, they're not prejudiced that that, that I get um, special treatment in both places because I'm like a guest, um, yes, exactly. and they're exactly. different. Different. It's not just about money in Japan. The Japanese had the money, and here, the uh, expats and tourists tend to have more money, but not always. Uh, well, let's 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 stay with what you asked about because I mean I am familiar uh, the fact that I've also lived uh, in Europe and in Germany for forty years is a very very different themes okay um, let me just say that 
I'm familiar with what you're talking about. And what I find fascinating, I was doing some reading. I was listening to a podcast from an amazing therapist who lives in Minneapolis. He's a African-American therapist who has become quite well known. He wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands. Uh, and then there is a, uh, a uh, white therapist who also has written amazingly about intuitive bias. In other words, the bias that we all carry, no matter what color we are, no matter what nationality, but that we, um, we are not aware of because it's so deep. We've been imbibing it since the day we were born. And she was talking about, I think it's called, I believe it's called white privilege in the United States. Um, and this intuitive bias, bias for a Zen student is amazing. I mean, I think it is an amazing practice to begin to uncover and become aware of all the different biases, all the different conceptual and streams of thoughts that we're carrying around, which shape our behavior, which shape how we shape how we interact with each other in everyday life, and we're completely unaware of. Yeah, even our life in a in a Zen practice, how intuitive bias uh, affects us. Um, but you know, I can maybe give you an example. It might be of interest to your uh, American. Now, maybe that goes off base a little bit. Let's leave that for now. But um, what I think is, if we if we step back a bit, bit if we step back from the issues themselves, which are important, okay, what is motivating this turmoil on both sides, yeah? What is at the heart going underneath the theoretical constructs, going on, going underneath the justifications? Because the expression of it, okay, whether it be um, wanting... Uh, the Black American National Anthem, or whether it's refusing to have certain things being taught in certain school systems. What's all under, now those are expressions. Those are cultural expressions of underlying emotions and fears that people that have convinced many people that they are right. They are right, and not only are they right, but they're doing good for others if they get assertive in what they're doing. But what's motivating it? Well, fear, anger, and ignorance in the Buddhist terms. Well, how we talk about those things in Buddhist terms. The three yeah, poisons. the three poisons. And many of us have not been trained to go underneath a belief to that place where we're not driven by fear or the need to assert ourselves or the need to protect everybody, but we are, we are just based in our humanity, which, you know, they say, for example, they've done a lot of studies now at certain universities studying compassion in babies, I mean, they, I saw one study where I think the babies were three or four months old, and they said that they were intuitively reacting compassionately in the laboratory as they were testing them. They had like black and white, maybe that's not a good idea, but they had puppets that were beating each other and puppets that were kind to each other, and the four or five months 
we're naturally gravitating toward the kind and, you know, pushing the, the aggressive puppet away. I don't know if it's true, but the scientists are saying that compassion is inborn. We are born with compassion. We are also born with fear and the, the sense yeah. of having to protect ourselves. But how can we express that in a way? I mean, that, look, this issue, this is what's going on in the Ukraine. This is what's going on in Burma. This is what's going on in, in China. And, and and horribly in Rwanda and in the country I'm living in, Germany, in the past. Yeah. And not so much. It's not the way. But, you know, if you look at the history of the of Nazism and how it's expressed. So all these movements are being fueled by the same thing, fear, anger and ignorance. And I think it's important that there are those of us who learn let me put it this way. I've been deeply inspired by um, mediators who work with, uh, and some of the most famous mediators of conflicts come from the Quaker tradition. Yeah. And yeah. I, I heard a podcast with one of these mediators that just, it brought me to tears because I said, oh gosh, I don't think I could hold the space open the way you're describing it you know, working with, with rebels in some African country who have already mutilated thousands of people and, and negotiating the talks between them and the other side um, and just listening to him. And what he, he said, somebody asked him, what is the secret to how you are, quote, unquote, accepted by both sides, accepted in the sense of allowing them to be there? And he says, because I have deeply, deeply trained that when I am in that position as a mediator, I don't take sides. I'm available to both sides. Yeah. And I'm thinking that we need, we need cultural mediators in the United States who can be trained to... Uh, there's, a, there's, for example, a group in the United States called the Civil Conversation Project the Civil Conversation Project, how warring people who are on completely opposite sides of the spectrum, how they can talk to each other, how they can find spaces where they actually agree. I heard one of these between a pro-abortion and a starkly Christian conservative person who, were, who came through guidance, through someone supporting them in that process to understand, in fact, they had things in common. No, it was about marriage. It was about uh, marriage beyond uh, man and woman. Yeah. And yeah. they were able to come to the same conclusion. They, they had similar perspectives. For example, both sides believed in the value of marriage. Both sides believed in the raising of children within a stable environment. And they were amazed, in fact, of the, some of the values that they actually shared. And then it becomes a question of, well, how do you express this in a way that doesn't denigrate or deny one faction? It's sophisticated. It's difficult. It involves the most deepest expression and willingness to explore one's own shadows but we as Buddhist teachers and others in different traditions, perhaps 
that's also part of our roles. We see this in the African-American expression in the United States. We have amazing African-American uh, leaders and also in, in uh, spiritual traditions, in, in Christian traditions of the church who are able to balance this. We have also people in other expressions uh, in the United States. I just hope they continue to do their work. It's not gonna be solved overnight. We're talking about a generational issue. Americans tend to have short memories, yeah? Um, yeah. But we're talking about something that is going to involve, evolve over generations. And I can only hope that um, the people who can be truly balanced, not just in word, but in action, uh, will have a role as we, and we as Western Buddhist teachers, we can have a really, really important role. Um, how that's going to manifest, I don't know. Uh, in Germany, we have very few uh, African people. Our, our, um, our groups are more, for example, people from Turkey, people from Syria, our right. Muslim-oriented populations. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, even yeah. And I've heard our, Germans speak about in the country, you know, uh, speak about Turks the way a, a racist a white person in the South uh, back in the 60s might speak about blacks. Well, uh, I have to tell you, though, there's a huge misunderstanding in the United States about German culture. I think that, uh, of course, we have our uh, the equivalent, equivalent of rednecks in Germany, but it's so small. The majority of the population are, um, uh, you know, they, they take a, a tiny incident somewhere in East Germany or wherever and report it in such a way that you think everybody in Germany that way is. In fact, that's an isolated incident of outright discrimination. I almost feel in Germany there's more open discussion about themes of difference and how to integrate um, than there is yeah. in the United States. It doesn't mean we don't have problems. We do. And we need to address them. Um, we have a huge problem in Germany with children who are caught between the cultures. Their parents were raised in a very traditional culture, but they're here in Germany and been raised in Germany. When they have, go home, when they go to school, they take off their veils and they take off their stuff. And when they get ready to go home in the evening, they have to put on their veils again. And it creates a tremendous dislocation for these young people. Um, that's just one aspect of, yeah. of the issue. But uh, I, I don't feel competent to talk about the situation in the United States because I don't live there. And if I yeah. just talk about what I observe... Um, yeah. I might be off base. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the United States, um, uh, you know, I'm, it appears that the driving force, the original driving force uh, behind uh, a lot of it is uh, what they call fear of white replacement. Uh, and it's being, uh, and there are, very powerful institutions like Fox News that uh, are pushing that very strongly. And uh, uh, my favorite statistician in America said that Trump 
uh, Trump's uh, victory uh, uh, in the Electoral College to become president was um, uh, not because uh, that the, the, the important thing statistically that put him over the top in the Electoral College wasn't, uh, um, you know, uh, workers and uh, but be, wasn't uh, right versus left. It was um, it was uh, fear of white replacement. It was more had to do with uh, uh, the the power of white nationalism in America. Well, we have a uh, similar issue. we have a similar issue here in Europe. Countries like Germany that until I don't know ten or twenty years ago were primarily German. Yeah. We are becoming an, a nation more and more of immigrants. We've had yeah. waves of immigrants coming. First, we had the Italian people. Then we had the, the Greek people who were coming in the 60s. Then we had the active recruitment of people from Turkey to come to work in the fa factories and other places in Germany in the 60s and 70s. Now we have the, um, the influx of refugees from Syria, uh, from uh, Serbia, from parts of Eastern Europe uh, that suffered war and, and came here. And Germany is experiencing a similar kind of thing where people are beginning to realize we're becoming a multinational country. People never yeah. thought about it 10 or 20 years ago, but now it's absolutely uh, an aspect. And it's interesting to observe, well, how do we work with that? And, you know, France, where I also live, that's a whole other issue. Um, yeah. We are, multi we are becoming a multinational world. And for some countries, it's more active than for others. Scandinavian countries are dealing with their influx of yeah. uh, people from other countries and other cultures. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. Americans tend to think, you know, tend to blow things up and think we're the only ones who are involved with this, but uh, maybe they're a magnified uh, thing of what's going on internationally. Right, right. I think, again, what um, does the Buddhist perspective offer us? Yeah, this, this yeah. is uh, an interesting thing. Um, and there's uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, what are your feelings about... Uh, climate change, uh, uh, and uh, especially climate change, and um, the future of the earth in the uh, role of Buddhism, or um, just how do you feel about that? That's a huge question, you know, and I have to say it's also a very American question. <laughs> you may not like that, but... <laughs> um, it's like one has to have an opinion about everything, you know, and one needs to be a specialist about everything. Of course, I'm concerned. <clears throat> the question is, though, is what is the best use of my resources as an individual, as a teacher? What are things that I can do to support ongoing life? Um, and, you know, being a climate activist in that sense is uh, not particularly what I can do best. However, we've trained thousands of people in our institute. We've trained over 2,000 people to teach mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, 
We've trained people in all walks of life and from all professions. And I hope that a very important principle in Buddhism, and one that we emphasize in Zen, which is the oneness of all life, you know, when people say to me, well, what is enlightenment or what is awakening? I always quote Bernie Glassman, and I say that for me, it's about experiencing the oneness of all life. If we truly take that to heart, then how can we um, pollute the earth? How can we kill all the trees in the forests? How can we do all that? But we haven't integrated it deeply enough. We haven't recognized that when we chop down a tree, we're cutting off our own leg. Yeah? Um, and so as a Buddhist teacher and as a teacher of mindfulness, I can best support the future of this earth by supporting people to work with their fears, work with their ignorance. And, um, and some of my students are climate activists. Some of my students are in parliament. Some of them are working in government. And, and it is absolutely an issue. But my answer to it is, how can I best use my skills to support those people who can actually go out and do something about it because they're yeah. legislators or because yeah. they work in or or whatever, you know? Yeah. That, that's my feeling. Of course, I believe very strongly that um, we need to do something to more uh, integrate with and support our life, which includes climate change. Yeah. Well, um, it's um, about time. I have a, an assistant arriving very soon. Um, so, uh, and uh, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I really appreciate everything you've had to say. Is there anything you'd like to uh, conclude with? Well, I want to conclude with thanking you, first of all, Thank you for inviting me to the podcast, but also honoring and recognizing your role as one of the bridges in uh, American Buddhism and in Buddha Buddhism and your books going way back, Crooked Cucumber and American Zen Failure in Japan. Um, they were very inspiring to me. And I think you've had a wonder and also now your maintenance of the archives with help from others. I want to thank you very much for your work and your dedication to doing this. Well, thank you. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> and um, I've been very impressed with the uh, work you're doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's opened up uh, uh, my, my awareness uh, of uh, a lot more. It's, it's, it's opened it up a little more. I, I've got a long way to go, but... Um, that that I I think you're doing very good work and I appreciate it. Yeah. So look, uh, we'll be seeing you. I'm yes, sure. That's right, you will. You will. We'll see you soon. And, and uh, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. And uh, take care. You too. Take care. Be well. Yeah. Bye. All right. Bye bye. So thank you very much, Linda Miyogi Lerhaupt. Uh, that was really interesting. Um, and um, I will try to be more mindful <laughs> from now on out. Uh, 
that was definitely uh, uh, food for thought. And um, please uh, continue uh, spreading mindfulness throughout the world as you've been doing. My gosh, you've got a lot of reach. This has been a Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sonora with Doggett Bandita, guest Doggett Bumbu. Real name, actually, Bumble, but it's too hard for people here to say Bumble, so we say Bumbu. Uh, <laughs> and dear lovely Katrinka. And we're all wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. Thank you.